Let me uh, take a moment to, to pray once more together. O oh, my Lord, let not my ministry be approved only by men, or merely win the esteems and affections of people, but do the work of grace in their hearts. Call in thy elect, seal and edify the regenerate ones, and command eternal blessings on their souls. Save me from self-opinion and self-seeking. Water the hearts of those who hear thy word, that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. Cause me and those that hear me to behold thee here in the light of special faith, and hereafter in the blaze of endless glory. Make my every sermon a means of grace to myself, and help me to experience the power of thy dying love. For thy love is balm, thy presence bliss, thy smile heaven, thy cross, the place where truth and mercy meet. Look upon the doubts and discouragements, and keep me from self-importance. I beg pardon for my many sins, omissions, infirmities, as a man, as a minister. Command thy blessing on my weak, unworthy labors, and on the message of salvation given. Stay with thy people, and may thy presence be their portion and mine. When I preach to others, let not my words be merely elegant and masterful. My reasoning polished and refined, my performance powerless and tasteless. But may I exalt thee and humble sinners. O Lord of power and grace, all hearts are in thy hands, all events at thy disposal. Set the seal of thy almighty will upon this worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue in this series, Pastor Stephen was kind enough to allow me to squeeze in here to uh, make it a three and a half or maybe four part sermon series. In the beginning, we looked at the builder, and we talked about how God, Christ, will build his church. Last week, we talked about the building. Today, before we talk about the business of the church next week, today, I want to take a look at the basement. I want to take a look at the pillars, the foundations, if you will, of what church is, and perhaps also take a look at our own hearts as individual members of the church, what our foundations are and where they lie. And so we've been using this metaphor, this analogy of a church as a building, but I want us to remember when we talk about church as a building, what we're saying is that as individual members coming together, we are called as one whole, a church. So a church is made up of you, 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 and even me. So here, even though we are gathered in a church building, worship is happening not because there's a roof over our head, but worship is happening because individual members are gathered as a church to worship Christ. So I want us to keep that in mind as we hear God's word today. Before we examine the church as an outsider, can we please look at our own hearts, our own hearts first? So today we'll look at the basement. We'll look at the pillars. Let me give you a little context before we go into this. In Acts 2, we see something magnificent happen, and that's not an exaggeration. The Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus Christ is 
coming has come. About 120 people were meeting in the upper room, and as they were gathered, a mighty rushing wind came and filled the whole room, filled the hearts of every person there. And Luke writes to speak in poetic ways to tell us it was as if there was a flame on top of each and every person's head. They were filled with the Spirit. The place was filled with the Spirit. This is a fruition of the promise of Jesus Christ. Then what happens? These 120 men who received the Spirit go out in front of the temple where there's about 3,000, over 3,000 people. And what happens then is that they start to speak in tongues, Scripture tells us, but more accurately translated in languages. We're told once they are outside, there is devout men from every nation under heaven gathered all speaking in different languages. And when these 120 men filled with the Spirit come out and they speak of the mighty works of God, what is fascinating is, even though there are so many language barriers, cultural barriers, they hear the mighty works of God in their own language. So when they speak in tongues, it's not some some mystical, angelic language. No, it is a concrete, earthly language that speaks about the concrete, earthly ministry that God of heaven has done through Jesus Christ, now carried through the apostles, disciples, Christians of all generations, including you and I. So what happens? There's an uproar. It's amazing. It's magnificent. People are in awe. And it starts to cause a little confusion. Someone says, what does this mean? So the apostles stand up. Peter, the rock, the people's champ, he stands up and he preaches. He preaches by expounding the scriptures, the prophecies of the Old Testament. He preaches Christ. He preaches Jesus, as verse 36 tells us, as Lord of lords, King of kings, and the Christ, the Savior the Lamb of God. Upon explaining through the Old Testament scriptures what is happening here and now as the Spirit is causing people to speak the mighty works of God, he proclaims Christ as Lord over all. And he proclaims him as Savior for all sinners. Wow, what happens now? We're told, as Luke tells us, about 3,000 people came to faith that day. They repented, they were baptized, and they were added to the household of God. Brothers and sisters, friends, as you hear the word of God, may we be led to repentance. As we hear the word of God, may we seek Jesus as Lord over our lives and Savior from our sins. Upon this reality, upon this beginning of the early New Testament church starting, we find ourselves in today's text on what happens next. After this magnificent work of the Spirit, we're told in our text the magnificent work of the Spirit again. And I want to make this clear. In verse 42 and onward in our text, this is still the work of the Spirit. What does it say? It says, they devoted themselves... So what we're going to do today is just look at two points, and if that makes you uncomfortable, you can take my concluding point as the third point. I know you're used to three. I'm going to give you two, but you'll see I'm going to sneak a couple extra in there. We're going to go through two points. First, they devoted. 
Second, they feared. They devoted. First, we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But before we move on, I don't want to take for granted this word devoted. What we are to understand is that these now new Christians who came to faith devoted themselves to these four things, meaning they persisted, they persevered, they pursued, they climbed uphill. means when the alarm rang in the morning, they fought themselves to not hit the snooze. When the evening was late and they were talking to a brother, but they were tired and wanted to go home, they waited because they wanted to love this person. This means that they devoted themselves. They intentionally carved out time in the day to be in the word of God, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves because it was hard. It took devotion, spirit-led devotion, because we are prone to wander. It took devotion, passion, conviction, and dependence on the Holy Spirit because it's not easy. And brothers and sisters, I want us to be aware of this fact that it takes spirit-led devotion. We must pray that God deepens our devotion. Let me confess to you here first, my devotion is weak as a pastor, as a minister. I realize my counterfeit is often theology, and that when I read the scriptures, I read it to teach it rather than to eat of it and drink it myself. We must be careful. And as I've shared my own weakness and and counterfeit, I, I invite you to to timidly but boldly before Christ examine, perhaps, our own counterfeits of devotion. We're told, and they devoted themselves, first, to the apostles' teaching. We're here to understand that when we are told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that it was Scripture as a whole, the Old and New Testament, perhaps can be summarized in the Gospel, They devoted themselves to the word of God. This tells us that the people of God must be students of God's word. And I'll confess to you, I was not a good student growing up. My parents sent me to all the best prep programs. I was getting ready for SAT since middle school. And then when I got to high school, played sports, I told myself, all I gotta do is break a thousand and I'm okay. (laughs) What a waste. My devotion as a student is weak. Honestly, it wasn't until seminary where I really started to learn how to read, to study, to love it, to push through. Here, we're being told that the people of God must be students of God's word. Why? Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for you and I for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 316, what better way to get closer to the word who became flesh than to be in the word itself? Brothers and sisters, we are called to devote ourselves to the teachings of scripture, to the apostles' teaching. And let me tell you why. I'm going to give us a couple scripture examples. Let me tell you why. Ephesians 5 
Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We are supposed to be students of God's word because it is by the word of God that you and I are sanctified as individuals and as a church. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let me tell you, if you're struggling in life right now, you're lost, you don't know what job to take, what school to go to, who to marry, what to do, you're in between decisions, well, the word of God comes in and graciously, lovingly, tenderly reminds us that it is his word that is a lamp for our feet to follow, that it's his word that lights the dark path of the unknown. If that's you, be a student of God's word and see if it doesn't lead you. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you're here today and your hope is faint and you forgot the hope of the gospel or you have no hope at all, and you woke up this morning and you said, what do I have to hope for? What do I have to hold on to? The Word of God reminds us that the Word of God was given to us for this very fact, for the days, for the morning, for the times when we feel hopeless to be instructed by God's Word so that through endurance, through perseverance, through pressing on and being encouraged by Scripture, we would have hope, that our hope would be reinstalled. If you are hopeless this morning, can I exhort you to be a student of God's word? 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul instructs Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul encourages his young student, his young son in the faith, Timothy, Devote yourself, if you're going to devote yourself to anything, devote it to reading scripture in public and in private. Because when you do that, it exhorts, it encourages, it uplifts, it challenges you, your hearers, and it teaches them how to walk. If you need to be encouraged this morning, may I exhort you to go to God's word. And lastly, this one's my favorite, Job 23. I know I'm giving you a lot, but I want you to see how good it is. Job 23, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. I told you this one hits home for me. More than my portion of food. I love food, and I like it in big portions. Job here reminds us that when he he hears God's command, he cherishes it. Whatever comes out of God's mouth that was recorded here in Scripture, he devotes himself to it. He doesn't depart from it. He doesn't waver. He treasures. He stores it up because he knows it's better than food. It's more important than food. It's more life-giving than food. If you're hungry and you've been to a ton of buffets and you're still hungry, if you go by each day thinking about what you're going to eat, 
to be satisfied, to get through that day. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, as Job reminds us, do not depart from his commandments. Treasure it up and see if just a morsel of worldly food wouldn't satisfy more when we are consuming the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we are called to, by the Spirit, in prayer, ask him to help us to deepen our devotion in God's word. We are to be students of God's word. What are some counterfeits that we may encounter today? One thing pastorally I've noticed from many of my friends, close ones of our members, is that, in fact, the reading of Christian books have gone up. The viewing and sharing of Christian quotes on social media has gone up. But what we are grieved to see is that biblical literacy has gone down. We have treasured up books, nuggets of truth, and we have traded that in for the primary source. Now, I want to be clear here. There's nothing wrong with a good Christian book. There's nothing wrong with liking that Instagram post with the picture of a mountain in the back and says, faith can move mountains. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm trying to say is that is a secondary source. We are called to devote ourselves to the primary source of God's revelation of himself in the word of God. I remember when I was growing up, due to unfortunate events, my mom had to be rushed to the hospital. And I remember this. She says, quickly, give me my Bible. I said, this lady's crazy. If I was getting rushed to the hospital, I, said, I would say, honey, give me my phone and get me my charger. Because my Bible's in my phone. Okay? And I got a lot of good other things in there, Christian things. I remember that. It's so small. I used to think my mom was the biggest legalist, but I remember that moment. She's getting rushed off to the hospital. Quick, give me my Bible. You know, reading our Bible is a lot like working out, isn't it? In the workout world, every so often, there's a new diet, a new fade, a fad, P90X, TRX, insanity. You know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters. But at the end of the day, when you boil it down, being healthy and losing weight is pretty simple, isn't it? It's about calories in versus calorie out, right? It's about just having a little self-control. But no, we wait year after year as our, I'll speak for myself, as my pant size grow, I'm waiting for that special workout where all I got to do is just sweat for one minute a day and I'll be transformed. Think about it with me, brothers and sisters. Are we not like that with the word of God? Instead of reading the primary source, we say to ourselves, I just need a quick and dirty, something to just mm, boost me up and get me through today. No, brothers and sisters, may we go to the primary source. Proverbs 25, 25 says this, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. As a church, as individuals, may I remind you that we are citizens of a far country, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that is drawing near. Today we hear that good news that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Often I find myself saying, God, I'm tired. I want to go home. 
I find myself saying, God, I'm still a young man, but I've seen enough. I'm tired of funerals, of death, of brokenness. And I sense the Lord say to me, then run home. Gather your brothers and sisters and run home because home is drawing near to you. Yes, in moments when we forget this truth, we must be still and remember that he is God. But upon hearing the word of God ignite us, fanning the flames, once we were still and once we acknowledge that God is God, then we must run and be still no more. If you have forgotten that God is God, be still and remember that. And once you are ignited by the Spirit to devote yourself once more, run. Which takes me to the second point, fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, we can translate fellowship very simply as common life. They devoted themselves to a common life. In the beginning of Acts 2, we see that the people gathered there were from every nation. They might be Jewish in ethnicity, but they spoke different languages. They're from different cultures. And in the beginning, before the Spirit came, there were just a group of people, a ragtag bunch of guys, a hodgepodge group of people. It wasn't until the Spirit came calling them to Christ, uniting them to Christ, uniting them to one another, that they now shared a common life in Christ. They didn't share a common life in food, in culture, in language. These people shared a common life in Christ, and this is what they devoted themselves to. Fellowship is hard. It won't come naturally. You know, I think about our two families that are here worshiping with us, and I'm sorry, I usually don't do this. But I think about our four refugee siblings from Rwanda, East Africa. They speak Kinyarwanda. Consoli, Gentile, Madeline, Igide. I think about our two cousins from Benin, West Africa. They speak French. Blanche, I took, I took French in high school, so. Blanche and princess. And I wonder about these individuals as they sit in our pews week after week. Are they here because they like K-pop? Are they here because they think kimchi is cool? Probably not. I'm convinced that they're here because they want to share a common life in Christ. As far as I know, they have never asked for us to find them a church where they can worship with people who look like them, who speak like them, who identify with them. And I want to encourage you guys and let you know that you are our family. All that they have asked of us is that we see them as family, that we fellowship with them, that we share a common life in Christ. Let me be just very honest and blunt here for us sitting here, most of us. If you don't feel like you fit in here, that's a little weird because most of us are Korean American. Culturally, we're from an immigrant generation. Most of us are from rather the similar socioeconomic class. Most of us can identify with sitting at the Korean table for lunch. Most of us share a common struggle, a common identity. We have more in common than the New Testament early church every day. But we struggle with community, don't we? Perhaps we are desiring a counterfeit. Perhaps the Spirit is convicting us now to take a closer look. Common life is not about sharing interests or hobbies or even food or music. Common life, community, fellowship with one another 
It's about sharing a common life in Christ. Look at verse 44 to 45 with me here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What does fellowship look like? It looks like people willing to even sell their own possessions so that others who are struggling would benefit. It means it looks like people who are willing to take a cost to themselves so that someone else in their household of faith has what they need. Now, a lot of times people hear this and they they say this is bogus because the church never helped me. Well, let me encourage you right now if that's you. If you have a need, please, will you let our deacons know? Will you let someone in the church know? If you have a need, do not rob us of the opportunity to fellowship in a deep way with you. If you have a genuine need, you're hurting, you're broken. I'm not just talking about finances. If you have a need, will you let our deacons know? Will you let someone know? We want to fellowship with you. We must, by the Spirit, devote ourselves to fellowship. We must pray that the Spirit deepens our common life in Christ. Let's stop trying to figure out what we have in common with one another when the real thing that matters is that we have Christ in common with one another. Third thing I want to go with, we can identify, breaking bread. Now let me say this. I know for many of us, breaking bread, we say, ah, you know what? Here's one we're good at. I know we're good at this. I break bread all the time. I break, I break bread three, sometimes four times a day. Breaking bread. Look at the text with me here. Look at verses 46 to 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me make this distinction and divide this by the word of God. There is a difference between eating and breaking bread. Let me explain this. Eating is fellowship based on food, centered around food, focused on food. Eating means that the food you are eating is at the center of your attention. Is it good? Is it bad? What cuisine is it? How much does it cost? Is it worth the money? What's the rating? What are people saying? What should I order? Eating focuses itself on food. And that's not a bad thing. We can eat. Every meeting doesn't have to be crazy Christian biblical fellowship where we talk about our life struggles. But can some of it be, brothers and sisters? Can some of our eating cross into breaking bread. If eating is focused on the food, then breaking bread is focused on the giver and the ones we eat it with. Next time someone asks you, where do you want to eat? It doesn't matter, brother. I just want to break bread with you. Because I am glad and my heart is generous. It doesn't matter where we eat. It doesn't matter, really? Burger King? Yes. I love Burger King because I'm glad and there is generosity in my heart because I remember what God did for me. And if you're struggling and you want to break bread, you know what? I'll even pay for Burger King. Which one should we go to? Should we look at the ratings? It doesn't matter. I want to break bread. Brothers and sisters, 
We're very good at eating. In some ways, our culture, we are surrounded by foodies, and it's a beautiful thing. Food has allowed us to see culture in many beautiful ways, so I'm not knocking food, I'm not knocking restaurants, I'm just saying, if we're just only eating, and it's only centered around food, then that is a counterfeit to what we are calling breaking bread. Brothers and sisters, being led by the Spirit, can I challenge you, by the power of the Spirit, to devote yourselves to breaking bread with one another. And lastly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. As we look at prayer, I wanted to draw our attention in the way that Jesus himself has taught us to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, we remember that he is holy, he is set apart, yet he is our Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done, not my kingdom, Lord, not my will on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Help me to trust in you today. Help me to rely on you today. Help me to empty myself of my own strengths and trust in you, depend on you, feast on you today, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Forgive me, Lord. And now move me to forgive others. And lead me, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead me today, deliver me today, so that I may be more like Christ. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to private prayer. They devoted themselves to public prayer. Why is prayer so important? Why is it such a beautiful exercise of communion? Because when we pray, we get to commune with God. We get to speak to God. And let me say this, the more we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the more we devote ourselves to breaking bread, the more we devote ourselves to the fellowship, the more we will have to pray. If you got nothing to pray for, that means probably you are not trusting God with anything. I would ask my youth group students, how can I pray for you? Nothing, I'm good. I'd say, that means you're not trusting God with anything. Brothers and sisters, we are called to devote ourselves in prayer. Prayer encourages, it empowers, it reminds us, it sends us, it softens our hearts towards another. Prayer opens our eyes, our horizon to who Jesus is. Prayer gives us sense and awareness that the kingdom is drawing near. Prayer propels us to the throne room of grace in the presence of God where he calls us son. And we can ask anything in Jesus' name and it will be given to us as it conforms to God's desire. May we devote ourselves to prayer. Last point, and this one is quick. By the Spirit we are called to devote ourselves to the teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. And what has resulted in the early church in the New Testament? And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, and fear, and reverence came upon the people as they devoted themselves to these four things. And as 
They devoted themselves to these four things. They saw wonders and signs being done through the apostles. And you know what? We no longer have apostles. But what we do have is their teachings. We have the scriptures. And through God's word, wonderful signs are still to be done and can still be done, brothers and sisters. Through the teachings of the apostle, there are still many wonders and signs to be done by God. So that many would come to Christ. We are called to devote ourselves, and it would lead us to a fear and awe, a reverence. I wonder how many of us, when we come to worship, have this weight of reverence and awe in the presence of God. I want to encourage us to, to, to steady our hearts, to dress our hearts in reverence as we draw near to Him in times of worship in times of prayer, as we draw near to him in his word, as we engage with one another. They feared, they had reverence for God. And a natural implication of this is that we ought to have reverence for one another. As Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of the reverence of Christ. You see, when we fear God, we are able to humble ourselves enough to submit to one another because Christ is our master. Brothers and sisters, let me conclude by saying this. As we look at these four pillars, as we look at what the early church, led by the Spirit, devoted themselves to, may we first look at our own hearts and our own lives as an individual member of this church and perhaps think about some of the counterfeits that we've enjoyed rather than the real thing. And may we ask the Spirit to help us because we can't just grunt our teeth, white-knuckled bearing, devote ourselves more. We need the Spirit's help. No pillar can make up for the other. If one is weak, we cannot rely on the other. All must be strengthened and encouraged. Nor in our church can we say one pillar is completely dead or gone or broken. For we know Christ, God himself is the builder. And this building, this church, this body, each and every one of us belong to him. But the stronger one pillar becomes, it will strengthen the rest as well. So start anywhere, but start in prayer. Start in prayer and ask the Spirit to help us be people of devotion. Let's pray together. I want to give us some time to search our hearts. We've heard a lot. This wasn't meant to guilt trip you. But I pray, as you have this time now before God, that the Spirit would unveil our eyes to our own hearts, to the weaknesses of our devotion, for the need to depend on Him, even to devote ourselves. Can I ask us to repent individually? for first even relying on ourselves. And then can I ask us to repent with a corporate heart that Christ will have his way with this church, that he would graciously crumble idols, that he will graciously show us counterfeits and give us the real thing, that our devotion may be ignited. 
Let's be still before the Lord and know that He is God, that this is His church, that we are His people, that He is the builder, and that by the Spirit, the foundations that are sturdy, for this kingdom cannot be shaken, is empowered by Him. Let us repent.